Hi everyone, welcome back to Impressionable with me, Becky Lee. It is season three. Let's get going with it. I've made you wait long enough. And for those who don't read my Substack, um, you're more than welcome to. But I told everyone there that I'm moving to France and that's why it's been a while because I've just been trying to sort everything out. It's stressful moving country. Um, but yeah, welcome back to Impressionable. This season, um, I have some incredible guests and I guess this season centers around the impressions that have been left on us that have become unhelpful or that we might need to unlearn. And I can't think of a better episode to start the season with than the one that I have today. It is with the incredible Rachel Thompson. She is an author and journalist and she has over 10 years of experience writing about sex, relationships and dating culture. Now, I found Rachel through her book, Rough, How Violence Has Found Its Way Into the Bedroom and What We Can Do About It. It's amazing. You have to read it. We talk a bit about it in the episode, but honestly, we talk about violence in intimacy and the gray areas and how we can come to recognize them and what we can do about it. I think this episode is amazing. Um, I should put a few trigger warnings in here because we're talking about violence in the bedroom. I'm sure there's plenty of references to, yeah, sexual violence, rape, assault. So if that isn't for you, then feel free to skip it. But I hope you stick around because it's an amazing one. Thank you so much to Rachel again, and I will speak to you at the end. Also, like and subscribe and share. That would be super helpful. Okay, love you. Bye. <laughs> Hi everyone and welcome back to Impressionable. This week I'm joined by Rachel Thompson. Hello. How are you doing? I am good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. You're looking so summery as well. <laughs> thanks. Well, it's just because I've come back from holiday and I've got the, the post-holiday glow still, I think. Mm, have, you, and whatnot. have you been anywhere nice? I went to France, which was really oh. nice with my family, my parents and my brother and his fiance. It was really fun. Very nice. I always feel like going on holiday with your family is the ultimate relaxation because my parents still just take care of everything. Oh my god, yeah, it's the best, and it's just like because my my parents are like sem- well, they're retired, but they're like they spend time in France like throughout the year. Yeah. So we just like eat from my dad like grows tomatoes, so it's just like making salads with like homegrown produce and things like that. It's, it's very nice. It's delightful. And this year, because um, my dad planted some apple trees, so there's like hundreds and hundreds of apples that are ready. So me and my mum were making like apple crumbles and I made apple chutney. And so it was like a lot of um, just like cooking and baking and like preserve making. It was delightful. Oh, it's gorgeous. You know, when I'm away, I'm like, why am I living in England? Do you not feel like that? Literally. Well, yeah, I'm just like, what am I doing? I should just retire now and just go... <laughs> go and join my my parents in that who are in their 60s who just spend their days gardening and it's delightful exactly of them. um a perfect well but for those that don't know you could you give a little intro into like what you get up to yeah so I am a journalist specializing in sex and relationships my first book rough was published in 2021 and yeah that's as a book all about um sexual violence and how um, systems of oppression can harm us um, in terms of sexual violence and um, it's a book that aims to broaden our understanding of what we consider sexual violence in society so whether that's microaggressions whether that's looking at non-consensual BDSM acts and things like that and just unpacking a lot of the very nuanced conversations around around this area because it's it's not the easiest topic to to mm. talk about I think no 100% I'm so excited to talk your book with you and have a big conversation around it but the inescapable question is uh what is something that's made an impression on you recently well um I obviously I was just on holiday so I was doing lots of reading and I read a book called Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeldt and I just loved it it made a huge impression on me mainly because I read it just before my 35th birthday at the start of July and I like honestly needed to read a book about a female protagonist who's you know she starts out at the, at the start of the book she's 37 she's 
kind of single, but she has this guy that she's like casually sleeping with, but she doesn't, she doesn't want anything. She doesn't want anything more from him. She's not looking to take the relationship any further. She's super successful. She's um, essentially like the equivalent of an SNL writer. Um, so she's like, a, you know, top of her game. And, um, and it's as the, as the title might suggest, it is a romantic comedy. And I thoroughly enjoyed just, I thought what an interesting, and I don't know, maybe, maybe I just need to read more like romantic books, but I just thought how refreshing to like read a book about, um, you know, a female protagonist who is first of all in her late thirties, not having the freak out that, you know, like the panic years freak out that so many, like, I think that that's the theme of so many books. And like, that does make a lot of uh, fiction quite relatable in that respect for for people who are thinking perhaps about, um, you know, children, biological clock, but that's obviously not the case for everybody. Um, but I just, I found it refreshing that she was just this successful, self-sufficient woman who was just doing her own thing and didn't seem phased by, I don't know, the pressures of society that and yeah I really enjoyed it and it was a really cute book as well and like kind of romantic very romantic actually <laughs> loved it so but did she end up with the partner then in the end well I mean this that's a major spoiler but oh, that would be telling <laughs> there's lots of, there's like there's love there is a, it's a love story so um but yeah and it's I don't know you just have to read it but it's it, yeah I, I really enjoyed it um but yeah I just thought it was quite um yeah I just I enjoy I enjoy reading about women who aren't like messy characters because I think that that's there's been a trend of the like I don't know the the one like woman on a verge of a mental breakdown type of thing and I'm like yeah. I love yeah I love reading about that sort of stuff I mean like hard relate but at the same time I'm like, <laughs> You know, there there are days where we feel more together and we would like to perhaps read about someone who's like, I'm actually just really good at what I do and I don't need to fix my life and I'm mm. complete as I am, you know. Mm. I don't need anybody else. But if someone gorgeous and amazing <laughs> and wonderful comes along, fine. Okay, maybe I'll change my mind. <laughs> yeah, that's a dream, right? Just like to be so fulfilled that's, you know, yeah. Someone goes, comes along, she makes it even better for sure. Yeah, you're like, oh well, everything's kind of perfect. I don't really need you, but like, yeah. <laughs> you insist, okay? <laughs> don't chase me, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I'll put it in the show notes because it sounds like a great book. Really good. Um, but this episode's about you mm. and everything that you write about because obviously I've read your book and it was super interesting, and I was drawn to all the nuances and um all the conversations that can be had within it but I just wanted to start with like your journey and what drew you to write that kind of piece of literature in the first place or just write about sex and relationships in general yeah so I suppose I started writing about sex and relationships um a really long time ago I mean it was like I guess a decade ago which feels like a long time but um and it was quite a different landscape because um you know I think what just as I was starting out like we were just hearing about like ghosting hadn't been invented yet basically um and I think it was I think we were all getting used to having iPhones and social media and like you know then this was the sort of dawn of dating apps and things like Tinder being launched and so it was like a rapidly changing environment and I happened to be also dealing with just like dating in general like in my personal life and you know I was in my I guess early to mid 20s at that point and I was just like I was just yeah having my own personal nightmare and I but it was like the the unique challenges that I hadn't faced when I was at university or when I was a teenager because things like tinder didn't exist yet and you know we didn't have like instagram and like I think at that moment in time like Instagram it showed you who like it, there was this activity or something yeah like you could see the activity of like 
either the person you were like casually dating this was like this basically happened to me like the guy I was seeing who I had feelings for but didn't want to let on because it was like we're just friends with benefits um I could see that he was like liking all these other girls posts and and I'm like does this uh, is he going out with her as well anyway it was was that moment in time that I and yeah basically I think I was I think I wrote one of the first articles if not maybe the first article in the UK about ghosting and I wrote it for the Sunday Times style yeah so um but yeah I'm I'm not 100% sure so but I think yeah so I was I started writing about where sort of digital culture collided with like love and dating um and in its evolution the challenges that it brought with it and they they were new challenges that we hadn't gone through before so essentially that's how my career started um and then in 2015 I joined Mashable um and I'm I still work there I'm the features editor there and I manage the sex and relationships section so essentially for over a decade I've been reporting and um writing about about the still rapidly evolving um digital dating marketplace and and also our sexual culture um that comes with that um and so obviously i closely follow the discourse the conversations that we are having the trends and all of that sort of stuff and um around 2018 um i it was around the the Me Too movement and there was a sort of, I think we started to have a conversation about something called grey areas. Um, and by that, that means um, things that I guess technically um, do not constitute sexual violence legally, um, but that constitute harm in some way, um, an experience that leaves you feeling harmed, even if it didn't perhaps meet the definition of, of rape. Um, and I was interested in this and wanted to understand more about what we mean by a gray area. Um, because there's also a lot of people that would be like, well, you know, it's either sexual violence or it's not. And so I wanted to, I was just really curious about this because I really identified with when people were talking about, uh, gray areas around this time. And it it felt like, we kind of dipped our toe into it, but didn't fully have like a bigger societal conversation about what we meant. But I was really intrigued by it. And mainly because I really identified with some of the, you know, people were posting long Twitter threads about gray area experiences. And I was like, wow, this really, you know, I identify with some of these experiences, you know, um, and I, yeah. And so I wanted to understand a bit more about what do we really mean by a gray area? And is is there actually such a thing as a gray area? You know, is it black and white? Are there such things as gray areas? Um, and so I began speaking to academics and um, activists um, in because there was a um, in Sweden a few years ago, there was a national conversation that happened about this very topic. Um, and the movement was called Prata Omdet. And essentially they were talking about, um, yeah, just feeling like feelings of being harmed in a sexual situation, um, whether that was rape, sexual assault, or whether it was these gray areas. So um, essentially I, um, that kind of led me into a few areas of, first of all, uh, violations which sit outside of the societal or the legal definition of uh, rape and sexual assault and so that's areas for instance where the law actually hasn't caught up with the way in which um, sexual violence is is perpetrated so an example of that is upskirting which Gina Martin campaigned to make illegal uh, cyber flashing, um, which is, you know, something that's an ongoing, I believe that's going to be made illegal um, in the digital harms bill. Um, but there's obviously, yeah, there's all kinds of um, digital violations um, that still need to be made illegal. So, yeah, so there's that element of, you know, morally, ethically, something is rape something is sexual assault but the law hasn't moved quickly enough to 
to outlaw whatever that is. Um, and then on the other hand, there's something called unacknowledged rape, unacknowledged sexual assault, which is something um, that is actually a really prevalent phenomenon. And it's a, it's essentially a time delay in a person's acceptance of something as violence. Um, and I realized that that was what was true of my story, my own personal experience, um, that actually I what I was referring to as a gray area, as a bad sexual experience, was actually sexual assault. I just hadn't called it that. And there was perhaps a reluctance. I think there was an element at the time of not knowing actually enough about consent, not knowing enough about what constitutes sexual violence and also what what normal normal or real sex or good sex respectful sex should feel like and what you know how i deserve to be treated um and yeah i definitely and so i think there was yeah a lack of education perhaps on my part at the time of my own experience when i was 19 and i was at university um and a slow realization process that took more than a decade for me um to realize actually what happened to me was sexual assault and and yeah it's a strange thing but I and so I I researched that element of things and then as I started talking to more and more people I spoke to more than 50 uh, women and non-binary people for the book and I I started to to interview people about um you know, ways in which they'd felt harmed that were perhaps microaggressions based on like their identity. Um, so, you know, racism in our sexual culture, fat phobia, ableism. And um, and so it became clear to me that there there's obviously so many ways actually that you can be harmed and you can feel violated. But yes, it doesn't like fit what our society might call sexual violence. But I guess it poses the question of like who who decides what constitutes sexual violence because like if you rely on lawmakers to define that that you know the law doesn't move quickly enough in many cases and also a lot of people in society um there's you know uh lots of marginalized communities in society that do not place their trust and faith in the law in um yeah. you know in sort of traditional roots of justice um because they have they are routinely targeted by them yeah 100 percent. i remember your your chapters surrounding uh, i mean fat phobia especially was so striking and this like consistent like object objectification like sexualization that makes people feel like horrible but then as mm. you said like you can't there's no law against that but people are still subjected to it every day. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, it's really prevalent on the dating apps. Mm. And I know that Bumble um, brought in, a few years ago, it brought in um, a, like a kind of broad spectrum of um, kind of harassment and bullying um, policies and, and fat phobic abuse was one of the things that it was sort of um, kind of, what's the word, doubling down on. Um, but it's a widespread I think I think essentially what's the, the problem is that all of the problems that we have within society um, also cross over into into our dating and sex lives so um, you know we exist unfortunately in a, a deeply fat phobic society in a deeply ableist society a racist society and you know the bedroom is not exempt from that and until people do the work and educate themselves then that will only continue no 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 that was so interesting um and yeah as you said like all leads to these gray areas again and mm. um, but something else that I wanted to touch on with you is this idea of like unwanted consensual sex because it's quite an oxymoron but you speak about it in your book and I just I found it so interesting yeah and this was also something that again fed into that concept of the gray area. yeah oh of course but um, as a follow-on I guess like pressures to like have 
unwanted consensual sex because it's like I don't know feeling like you have to exactly and I think there's a load of reasons why so unwanted sex I guess it's it's probably helpful to like actually yeah, define that. the terms <laughs> so unwanted sex is not rape it's not sexual assault but it's consent it's sex you consent to but you don't want to have you don't desire and so it is kind of yeah that's why it sounds a bit kind of oxymoronic when you say it because you're like surely that's just rape yeah so unwanted sex is essentially yeah it's it's consensual sex you've consented to have sex but you don't desire it you don't want it and there's a lot of different reasons why why that happens why we consent to sex that we don't want to have um and speaking to experts about it speaking to academics that research this um because I was sort of trying to understand like okay what are like the ethics of this like you know is it morally wrong to engage in this and and they were very quick to sort of say well it's not you know as researchers it's not our role to like pathologize this but just to state that it exists and there's all kinds of reasons why human beings engage in sex you know and not all of them are just because they're horny in the moment, you know. Um, there are, you know, if you are someone that's familiar with attachment theory, for instance, um, if you're an anxiously attached person, you're more likely to engage in unwanted sex because um, because of your attachment style that makes you feel, you know, it makes you feel insecure. It makes you want to um, gain the validation or gain closeness to um, the partner that um, that is activating your attachment style um, and so yeah in order to feel closer to that partner you might have sex with them because you feel like it like maybe they'll like me maybe they'll fall in love with me I have been there so <laughs> they did not fall in love with me <laughs> um, yeah so um, that's one um, one example of them there's maintenance sex which is something really common in um long-term relationships you know like you have sex with your partner because you want them to feel loved you want you know you want to do something nice for them um maybe you're not feeling great but like it's been ages since you've both had sex and and so you know it, it's instances like that but there are also more complex societal reasons um that are to do with um like a person's socioeconomic status um and so in researching this i spoke to one academic who coined a term strategic consent and in this instance unwanted sex can happen because it's the person's safest option saying yes and therefore consenting is a strategic move um because uh, it's the safest thing for you to do in that moment so whether that means um you know, you need a bed for the night, you need money, or, you know, there's a transactional nature perhaps to it, or you feel obliged to, um, and, and perhaps the person might get violent if you don't do it, you know, um, and in that respect, there's a coercive element to it. So, um, yeah, so in that respect, strategic consent is something yeah, that if you if you are a person, because also when we talk about sexual agency, I think often in our that we can just talk about, oh well, we all have the same amount of agency, um, we all have the same amount of sexual agency, and that's just not true. Um, and and the conditions in which we live, um, you know, our financial conditions, our housing situation, and all of those um, elements, our race, our sexuality, our gender identity, all of those things impact how much sexual agency we have um and and so yeah we're not all unfortunately it's not an equal playing field um when it comes to how much agency we have um and and so that can result in in people who are in more sort of insecure situations in life um yeah that can result in them consenting in a strategic you know strategic consent yeah uh sense to a situation that they don't desire or want but that's the safest option yeah 100 and again like exists as a gray area because mm. because i guess of the oxymoronic aspect but when we talk about consent something that i learned from your book that also was thinking about as we were talking God, none of this was taught to me in school and i feel like really resentful about that but you talk about consent as like a constant negotiation and that like you can withdraw at any point in that 
that's another element where gray areas come in because people think that once they've consented at the beginning, like they just have to follow through. Yeah. And that's such a common um, misconception. And it's something that, you know, in my own situation when I was 19, you know, like I, I didn't have that awareness and it's, you know, it's hard, it's strange because I'm like, how can, I mean, I write about sex and relationships for a living. I've always been interested in this, you know, obviously when I was at university, I wasn't, you know, I was doing English and French. So, but I always wanted to read the books that were about sex and gender and all of that sort of stuff. So um, I'm just like, now I'm looking back, I'm like, how could I have been, how, how did I not have a full understanding of how consent worked? But I just, I mean, I try and look upon that with, I mean, I don't think it was my own fault anyway. I think that unfortunately um, the education that I received just wasn't robust. The sex education at my school wasn't good enough at all. Um, So yeah, it's a really common misconception that consent is just a one time, you know, like yes at the start of a sexual situation and that, you know, once... And so, and because, because it's obviously misconstrued in the sense that it's a one-time thing, then everything that happens after that is just fair game. And well, you've said yes, haven't you? So, you know, but it doesn't work like that. And um, sex is ongoing. And by that, it, I mean that you can, at any point, um, you can withdraw it. Um, and each new sex act that's introduced um, requires separate consent. So, whether that's a blowjob or a handjob, oral sex, whatever, that requires individual consent. It's not just like, yes to all of the above. Um, And it all, you know, introducing new things, especially from a kink perspective, a BDSM, not only does that require individual consent, but it also uh, requires prior communication, you know, to discuss boundaries to discuss uh safe words safety protocols and things like that um so yeah that's that's kind of um unfortunately a common misconception and i i think that again with the, with the bdsm and the kink element too unfortunately we are living through um a sex misinformation crisis um and on tiktok um a lot of kink educators are really concerned about the the rise of kink misinformation specifically on TikTok. Um, and that's leading people to, to sort of like spring upon people, uh, BDSM or kink acts that require that t- when, when practiced correctly and by members of the BDSM community, they um, are done so with, you know, prior communication and consent negotiation and, um, you know, safety considerations. Um, And so obviously it's really alarming when, yeah, because of, I think the the consequence of not having robust sex education, which is sadly still true, I think today in schools, it's still not good enough. Um, Young people inevitably turn to the internet when they have questions um, you know, they'll they'll look on Pornhub if they want to know how to give a blowjob. They will, you know, but also if they're scrolling through their for you page on TikTok and you know they see a video about like choking someone or spitting in someone's mouth, um, and it's from someone the video is from someone that's not a kink educator that actually doesn't have a BDSM background, doesn't really know what they're talking about, then you can see that you can see how that's kind of quite dangerous in the hands of someone that doesn't know doesn't know what they're doing and doesn't know how to discern um you know who who's the who's the appropriate person or who's a knowledgeable source to go to on this topic um and so unfortunately that's kind of the situation at the moment on the internet and it's quite alarming yeah it's 100% and I know there's loads of arguments about porn as well that like push um like younger people like to the extremes where they're not really learning about consent or you know all these things they're just going straight to the hitting they're going like straight to all of the king stuff before they've even you know had a partner in the first place yeah and I think 
<clears throat> it's it's really tricky because you know it's on the one hand i i know i definitely looked at like you know the the porn like the mainstream porn sites when i was curious about sex and i, I didn't you know even though i have a great relationship with my parents i didn't particularly feel like asking my mum like hey mum how do you give a hand job you know like, yeah <laughs> and uh you know so it's it's really hard and i think you know um unfortunately you know young people are going to porn which is designed as entertainment but they're using it as an educational resource which is not it's just not what it's been designed to do and you know and if you take something as an educational resource then you'll think okay well this is what this is what sex is like and this is how people do it but often I mean yeah like the last time you watch porn it's probably you can't I can't remember seeing someone negotiating consent or you know using barrier contraception um talking about sexual boundaries talking about safe words um you know all of that sort of stuff and certainly when it's when there's things like choking when there's things like spanking or impact play um you know you're not getting the full picture in terms of all of the considerations that go into that you know, all of the, because for instance, with impact play, which we often refer to as spanking, um, that is, you know, you, there are specific parts of the body that you cannot hit, you know, you can't, you have to avoid, you know, major organs, you need to only hit fleshy parts of the body. That's why your butt is the perfect place to be spanked, because it's, it's fleshy. Um, but yeah, major organs, um, your head, things like that, can result in serious, you know, life changing injuries. Um, so, you know, these are all considerations that are not going to be conveyed in a five or 10 minute porn video because it's just not designed that way. Like, you know, as because it's entertainment. And so, and again, with TikTok as well, like you're not, you're not getting that kind of breakdown. And so that's why it's really important, I think for, for people to, if they are considering, you know, trying out kink, trying out BDSM, whatever it is that, you know, whether that's um, power play, like dom sub dynamics, whether that's impact play, uh, breath play, um, all kinds of this. I mean, it's like the possibilities are endless. And I feel like it's really important to, um, to educate yourself. And that's something that's a really integral part of it. And so there are kink educators out there um, and they are making content on platforms like TikTok and Instagram and places like that. Um, and they run workshops and classes in real life. Um, and there's a lot of books on this topic as well. There's a lot of uh, websites, but it's it's really, yeah, I think you have to look in the right places and you have to be getting that information from a reputable, genuine uh, kink educator, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Because from what I've like seen of the kink community or kink educators, it is all about negotiating boundaries, like safe words. Like they're very clear on how to practice it safely. And as you said, if there's misinformation out there, all of that bit gets skipped, and then you get into some dangerous areas. Yeah, and also just I think it's also worth noting that there are people who I think you know it's it is too too generous to say that you know, any time someone's choked without consent, which is that sexual assault, um, you know, that that's down to a misunderstanding or them not understanding how consent works. Unfortunately, that's not just, that's too generous an explanation because we live in, a, you know, a misogynistic society and, um, you know, sexual violence is is because, because misogyny exists because of uh, white supremacy and because people want to exert power on someone that has less power than them so it's it's not it's not as simple as you know um unfortunately just it's a misunderstanding um and so yeah the like i said earlier you know this the the systems of oppression the problems that we have in wider society you know existing in a patriarchy existing in a deeply misogynistic culture um you know these are also 
feeding into our sexual culture and resulting in violence, which is also deliberately perpetrated. Yeah. And you talk about in your book about the rough sex defense and that like victims are almost sometimes like shamed for engaging in BDSM sex. Um, and like there's acquittals because it's like, oh, she was into that stuff, you know? Yeah, it's it's horrific. You know, so the rough sex defense, which is, you know, sometimes referred to as the Fifty Shades defense, um, sometimes referred to as, you know, in a, in a murder trial or in like grieve, instances of grievous bodily harm, uh, a sex game gone wrong. Um, and I think my feeling on that on that topic is these are abusers, these are murderers who want to exploit the the stigmatization that exists of rough sex, of consensual rough sex, of BDSM, um, and people's lack of understanding of it, and to exploit that, to exploit the language of it, um, and the knowledge that people don't know enough about it um, to excuse the violence that they have committed um in an attempt to pass it off as an accident to pass it off as well she wanted it you know and and it just yeah it's it's murder and and i think unfortunately we do still live in a society that is um i think there's a lot of kink phobia i think there's a lot of stigma around the bdsm community and unfortunately all of the conversations around rough sex defense haven't really done much to kind of shift that because I don't think the conversations have been nuanced enough um because everyone just like uses rough sex as an umbrella term that like essentially they're using it to describe both consensual and non-consensual acts and therefore just further muddying people's understanding of consent and you know BDSM and and so you get essentially you get people thinking that BDSM is murder and BDSM like people who engage in BDSM are dangerous and and so that's kind of the troubling narrative that I think has emerged from from the cover the media coverage of of the rough sex defense um and yeah I think also by using the rough sex defense one of the things was essentially you know it's like if you if you plead not guilty to a murder then all of the horrific details of the crime will be then discussed in front of the family members and you know the next of kin and so that was obviously what was happening in these rough sex defense cases because the person was saying i'm not guilty this was just a sex game gone wrong therefore the entire courtroom and their parents and their children or whatever would listen to a graphic breakdown of you know a person's you know the deceased sex life um and that would then be weaponized against them and used to excuse a mu- the murder um because they were asking for it which is just deeply misogynistic and messed up on every level so yeah yeah hopefully that stills some of some of what that chapter in the book was talking about yeah, and I would recommend anyone to go the whole book really, but I think especially that chapter's super important. And it was making me think about like you've been in the game, as you said, like a decade now. Do you feel like the landscape is getting any better or is it how's it changing in terms from when you started? Well, just in terms in general, like I think it's so I think what's really great is that and this is something that I try really hard at Mashable to do. Like, I think you'll see a number of publications um, publishing more about um, BDSM and kink in a way that is really responsible and, you know, gives a breakdown of consent and safety um, and, and talks about it in a way that doesn't feed into that stigmatization. Um, And so that's something we publish a lot. Um, we we have a, a weekly column called Come Again at Mashball, and it's designed to combat the sex misinformation crisis by providing guides. Like we have a guide on how to give a blowjob, how to perform cunnilingus, and we have specific guides on BDSM and like individual 
like niche practices within BDSM. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that it's really positive to see more coverage, um, more positive and in like educational coverage in the media of BDSM um, that can be, you know, that will help combat the sex misinformation crisis. I think also um, broadening our understanding of um, relationship structures. So talking more about non-monogamy um, and, you know, polyamory and, um, you know, consensual and ethical non-monogamy and the relationship structures that exist within those communities. Um, so you're seeing a lot more coverage of that again, in a way that is not, I mean, this isn't true of every single outlet, but you know, a lot of publications are writing about it in a, in a, uh, helpful and non-stigmatizing way. That's not true necessarily of everywhere, of course. Um, and also, you know, more, I think a less, a less heteronormative approach to sexuality, um, and sort of talking about, um, you know, queer culture, queer sex acts, you know, um, providing sex education for queer people who are obviously excluded from that when we're like, certainly my generation, um, didn't have any, any sex education other than just like, oh, you, everybody must surely be heterosexual. Here's how to have penis and vagina sex. So I think, I think we are moving forward, um, and broadening our conversations in terms of what sex is and you know who gets to learn about sex because I think yeah I think everybody should get to learn about it and, um in ways that are relevant to them um but I think there's a lot more work to be done in terms of uh self-education um and I think it's really important to regard sex as something that it's not just something that you learn about when you're at school in your sex education lessons, but it, as a sexually, if you're a sexually active person, then you should also be committed to learning and educating yourself and, um, and to be, to being a responsible person, um, you know, to, to ensuring that the people you have sex with are safe and, you know, feel, do not feel harmed after sexual encounters and and yeah doing doing your best to educate yourself to ensure that that doesn't happen um by reading books not just about sex but just about things like you know anti-racism things about fat phobia you know so um and something that I wrote about in in the book as well was ethical sex you know if we think about if you think about your day-to-day -day reactions, your interactions that you have, you know, when you go up, when you, when you leave the house, um, you go to Sainsbury's or whatever, you go to a shop, you don't, you know, you don't treat people badly in those day-to-day -day interactions. You know, you don't want harm to come to somebody that you bump into in Sainsbury's. You don't, you know, the person that's standing next to you at the traffic lights, you don't want anything bad to happen to them and you know you wouldn't want your behavior towards them to be hostile or to make them feel scared so how should the bedroom be any different from the day-to-day -day interactions that we have where we are thinking about our value systems you know the way that we've been brought up right we've been brought up to be good people to be respectful people so how is the bedroom removed from from those values um and so that was something that i also thought is really important to that we should start thinking about <laughs> yeah no 100 that would have been such a good note to end on but i have some more questions <laughs> for you so if you don't mind i was like preach rachel preach <laughs> yes 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 i was trying not to like click along and <laughs> um, <laughs> but i want to talk um just briefly about like consent and contraception because you talk about um stealthing and that was something that I learned like really recently like through a book and I think it was on um I may just did it happen on I may destroy you yeah. as well yeah if you could touch on that yeah um so under so this is something that actually uh a lot of people don't realize is rape um but it is and actually it legally in this country is rape um so um under I, th I think this is in English and Welsh law but we have something called conditional consent 
Um, and that's essentially um, the condition, the conditions of a sexual situation that you consent to. And one of those conditions can be um, having sex with a condom. And if that condition is removed, then that then that's in violation of the consent. Um, and there was a court case um, in which there was someone um, who was convicted for rape and and so that's you know a landmark ruling and um but yeah this is something that a lot of people weren't really aware of and i think i may destroy you um by michaela cole did a lot of was it did amazing work in essentially just broadening people's understanding and also just getting getting the the message out there that this is rape and um and i think for people who'd experienced it who didn't have the words necessarily to describe what had happened um you know because stealthing is non-consensual condom removal which is kind of a mouthful but it's also rape and um but i don't think i don't think people necessarily i don't think it's widely known um and it's certainly not in the conversation in the sort of like top line conversations that people have about rape and sexual violence this is not something that necessarily comes up all the time and so a lot of people who experienced it weren't aware that what had happened to them was rape. And by watching this program, um, and there was a, um, I think it's Sophie Wilkinson, the reporter who um, who interviewed um, people who had been victims of stealthing and talked to them about how it felt to watch I May Destroy You. And actually it was an incredibly moving article because so many of them felt really seen they were watching this show and they felt validated they felt like oh my god like I knew I knew it felt wrong and now someone actually is confirming that and it's through a television program you know and I think what an incredible service you know to to do like I think that that is ultimately something that has changed people's lives um and done an important um you know it's, it's done a lot in terms of awareness as well um because so many people just didn't know and yeah so I think yeah I feel like I've just trailed off there. no no you're so right and like now that people know they're just much more likely mm. to call it out like they're just much more likely to be like that's a violation exactly. you know whereas rather than it being like oh not sure I feel about that they can hand you know even in the moment prevent themselves from you know getting into situations that they well, yeah and also in. you know I, I don't know I think a lot of especially women have had situations where um like the person's been really reluctant to wear a condom you know the last person I slept with was like really weird about it and I was just like this is a major red flag like I never I never want to see you again because you're being so weird and gross about like how much you hate wearing a condom and you know I'm just like no like this is a deal breaker this is my that's my condition of consenting and if if that's not going to happen then I don't consent and so you know I think it's a a very valuable lesson because it's not yeah it's not just about also the the acts the sexual acts but it's also the conditions under which it's happening as well definitely um well thank you so much I have a final question um, and I always love hearing the answers for these because they're always so sweet. Um, but what impression would you like to leave on the world? I love this question. Um, and I don't know, it's quite a philosophical one, really. It is a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, when I was younger, and this is before Rough came out, I, you know, when I was a child, all I wanted was to write books. And, um, and I, and then when I was in my twenties and I hadn't done it yet and I hadn't actually done anything to even move that desire forward. I used it to beat myself up mentally. I was like, you haven't even done the thing that you come on this world to do, you know, do it. And, and so for me, you know, I want, you know, I feel like my purpose, I feel, I feel like my purpose in life is to write and I feel um, that through writing and through reading, you can gain a sense of community um, and a kind of shared understanding. And I think w- what really has moved me in the response to Rough is that people have written to me and told told me that 
you know, they've, they feel seen. And when they've read the book, they, it's helped them process something they've gone through. It's helped them understand what's happened to them. And, and really like, there's no greater gift as a writer than hearing that, you know, your work has helped somebody do that. And I think I, yeah, I would like to, I think in terms of my impression that I'd like to leave on the world, I think that my writing has helped somebody, you know, I think that that's, that's what I wanted to achieve with rough and, and hopefully my next book will, will be helpful as well. Um, But yeah, I think, I think just being a writer, it's, it's a strange kind of thing because you're, you know, you're hidden behind a computer screen and you're writing your own truth on a page in the hope that someone else will read it and recognize themselves in those words. And so that's all I can, that's all I can ask for that, you know, that someone picks up my book and recognizes themselves on the page. Yeah, that's amazing. And and your books are gonna I will be passing them on to whatever kids I may or may not have. I'll be like, this is essential reading. Get going. Um, <laughs> so definitely. Um okay, I've bothered you for too long now. But if people wanna reach out or find you, can can they where can they? Yeah, so you can read my work on mashable.com. Um I you can buy my book in any good bookstores um, online or in person. Um, you can find me on Twitter or X, whatever it's called now. Um, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> my handle is rvt9. On, I'm more on Instagram these days. I'm Rachel V Thompson uh, underscore um, on Instagram, which is a bit of a handful. But um, so yeah, you can find me on the internet. <laughs> amazing um thank you so so much for for being on the podcast thank you thank you for having me thank you so much again to rachel for being on this episode if you liked as i said at the beginning please rate us five stars and give us a subscribe share with your friends and yeah there will be more episodes there's plenty more to uh to come and you can also go back through the archives Have a lovely week and I'll speak to you next time. Lots of love. Bye.